0: Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Alma Thomas. Along with Jonathan Frederick Walls, my first guest, Seth Feeman, is the co-curator of Alma W. Thomas' Everything is Beautiful, a retrospective at the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia. The exhibition includes about 100 works, including paintings on canvas and paper, theatrical designs, and plenty more. From the Chrysler, it will travel to the Phillips Collection in Washington, the Frist Art Museum in Nashville, and to Thomas's hometown Columbus Museum in Georgia. I saw the show a couple weeks ago. It is fantastic. Get thee to Norfolk as fast as you can. The exhibition's outstanding catalog is now the go-to monograph on the artist. It was published by the Chrysler and Columbus in association with Yale University Press. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $65. We will, of course, have links on the show page at manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Ronald Lockett with Bernard L. Herman. Before we get to all things Alma Thomas, it would be a big help if you would give us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. Reviews are even better. Thanks very much. Seth Feeman, after the break. Outdoor Theater Under the Stars returns to the Getty Villa Museum with Liza Strada, a hilarious retelling of an ancient Greek comedy set to Liza Minnelli's greatest hits. Cheer on our hero as she takes on the establishment, storms the Acropolis, and rallies the women into a sex strike until the men of Athens and Sparta commit to peace. Experience the talented Troubadour Theatre Company as they perform in a venue modeled after ancient Greek and Roman theaters. Shows start September 9th. Book your tickets now at getty.edu. Experience Nasher Mixtape, a series of tracks or micro-exhibitions featuring the greatest hits and the newest works at the Nasher Sculpture Center, see works by Basquiat, Brancusi, Melvin Edwards, Miro, and more, including Judy Chicago's rearrangeable rainbow blocks. The vibrant major work by Chicago celebrates the part women artists played in the legacy of minimalism. Exhibition closes on September 26th. More at NasherSculptureCenter.org. And we're back. Seth Feeman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here, Tyler. In the early pages of the catalog, y'all feature photographs of all kinds of parts of Alma Thomas's house, her bedroom, her kitchen, and the exhibition itself, for that matter, includes several Ida Jervis photographs, for example, of a window in Thomas's home and a view of the garden outside that window that was important to Thomas. Why was it important? to y'all to start with pictures of Thomas's home and show us so much of what she
1: saw outside it. When Jonathan Walls, my co-curator, came to me about this project, he's the curator at the Columbus Museum in Georgia, where they have a real treasure trove of Thomas material. She was born there and spent almost 16 years of her life in Columbus before moving to Washington, D.C. And after she passed, the family Her sister really gave quite a bit of the estate, ephemera, photographs, lots of studies and some works of art to the Columbus Museum. And he wanted to assemble this exhibition. And he knew that I had done some work on Thomas before and we were talking about it. Uh, So I went down to Columbus to visit with him and look at things. And although I wrote part of my dissertation on Alma Thomas, i had never accessed that collection. And it just opened my mind in new ways it really confirmed things that i was suspicious about but i didn't quite have the evidence for and really reaffirmed what jonathan and i had been talking about which was the importance of the locations where thomas produced her work and we know from uh, various sources that she produced much of her work in her home studio which was part of her kitchen and it looked out onto her garden And we really wanted to focus on that area. I think the real exciting moment came when we got in touch with Roland Freeman, a photographer who had gone to visit Thomas in the 1970s to talk to her about her work and make some images. And he was able to share with us unpublished photographs that he made. I think one or two ultimately made it into the publication, but he had lots of outtakes that went room to room and we included quite a few of those in the catalog. And when the light bulb came on was when we saw how much of the material that we knew was a part of her life at different stages she continued to live with. So we knew that she worked in costume design. We knew that she worked in marionettes. We knew that she taught creatively for decades. We knew that she was interested in the theater. And all of those things were really confirmed when you could see how she lived with those in her life in DC, kind of all at the same time. They really overlapped in the home. So I think one shot that Roland Freeman took that really excited both Jonathan and I was one where you see a marionette that she made in the 30s sitting on a chair underneath a painting that she made in the 60s or 70s. And it just seemed like all of these areas of creativity weren't discrete areas, but were in fact overlapping. And that's where the project really took off.
0: There's a color picture of Thomas's bedroom that's reproduced in the catalog where there's a kind of a similar but not totally similar moment. There is a classic Thomas stripe painting on a wall and below it, on the foot of Thomas's bed, there's a striped blanket.
1: I love that photograph. And it's it's early in the catalog. You see her work and you also see a work by Jacob Canaan above the bed. And you can see her favorite rocking chair. And it doesn't exactly translate when you see it in reproduction, but you see the blue tone that is on almost every surface. The bed, the rocker has blue cushions. The walls have a blue tint. And she really made this oasis in her home. You can almost map this out when you look at the contact sheets. And as you turn the corner, you can see there's a cabinet. That has photographs of family members and a sculpture that she made in the 1920s or 30s. You can just see all of the things that she lived with that were constant sources of inspiration for her. I want to go back for a quick second to something you said a moment
0: ago, because I'm sure it caught the ear of listeners. Alma Thomas worked in her kitchen.
1: Her studio was her kitchen. Her studio was her kitchen. It was set up very deliberately so that she could look out onto her garden. And that's another thing that is kind of revelatory when you look at the photographs. She had her paintings stacked up against the wall. I mean, she was really living uh, immersed in them. There are photographs of her sitting at her kitchen table where it's just covered with studies uh, on small sketches on paper, and she's eating at the same time. So you see that she's really living among her art. There's a picture in the catalog of Thomas
0: and her friend David Driscoll sitting at a table in what I think is her kitchen, because I think I see something sort of dishwasher-like, surrounded by studies and brushes and all of the things that artists are surrounded by, apparently even in their kitchen before I I kind of move on on from the kitchen. It's worth noting, Thomas was far from the only Washington, D.C.-based painter of the era to turn her kitchen into a studio. That's where Morris Lewis, on the other side of town, up in Northwest, worked as well. So core to your presentation is a broad understanding of Thomas's painting, to be sure. But the exhibition is also a presentation of her life and her interests and as her life and interest is being inextricable from her painting practice. How did you and your colleagues try to bring together Thomas's art with her life, with her love of music, to argue for her overall commitment to beauty as
1: her primary way of engaging with her world? You know, it's another really good question. And... At this point in the project it's almost hard to imagine seeing it from the other direction. It's almost hard to imagine her work isolated, her painted work isolated from the rest of her creative activity because as we've seen as we go through through the project we just saw time and time again how these areas of creativity overlapped consistently and I, I can give you just one one easy example a lot of speculation has gone into how Thomas laid out what are known as her signature Alma's stripes the sort of striped motif which was kind of her breakthrough in 1965 1966 when she kind of innovated the style that we now identify as Thomas's style. When she started that, there were pencil lines and there was organization of the canvas. But we also know that she used the tools of dressmaking in order to create her arrangements. So she would use elastic bands, which were used in costume design and sewing and yardsticks. And she would use the yardstick to kind of move around the elastic bands. And that relationship between things that she would have had on hand, she would have had this elastic from when she was studying costume design and making costumes, when she was making marionettes. We knew that these things worked very closely into her creative practice, and then we see how they apply to her painting practice in specific.
0: Thomas's 1976 painting, a really big painting, titled Red Azaleas, Singing and Dancing Rock and Roll Music, which is now at the Smithsonian American Art Museum and went there indeed as a bequest from Thomas. Red Azaleas became what you described in the catalog as a touchstone of y'all's work on the exhibition. Why? What made that an important picture for the group that put the show and the book together?
1: So I can't really wait for people to see the work because it is an enormous triptych. It's really eye-filling and you, you, you're you almost fully engulfed by the painting when you're standing before it. And so there's kind of a monumentality to the work, which in and of itself is worth noting. But as you can tell from the title, there's a reference to music immediately. And from the title, there's a reference to the garden. And at its scale, there's a kind of reference to theatrical qualities and All of these themes are distinct portions of the exhibition. So one one part of the exhibition focuses on her garden and garden-inspired work, and how she used the garden to connect different social circles in her life, as well as for inspiration for her paintings. Another section deals with the theater and her involvement in the theater from when she was at Howard studying costume design to her lifelong attendance to performances at the National Theater, to her interest in music and the way that music interweaves her painting titles and the experience of her paintings in various ways. And all that kind of came together in this punctuation mark in the project with this one work. I want to set up the chronology of
0: Thomas's painting career a bit and then kind of get into specific works and specific groups of works and specific interests. But it's kind of funny in that, your show is not a project that revolves around chronology, as you just mentioned. It kind of revolves around interests. Could you give us an idea of kind of when in her life Thomas started painting and what she painted and kind of how her interests in oeuvre evolved until until the end, until 1978?
1: So it's interesting because she talks about coloristic experiments, to use her term, when she's even a young child and there's a story of her gathering these little pots of mud or clay that had had a kind of tonal differences due to runoff, we think, from a mill. And she would use those to kind of create color combinations at a very young age. There's nothing formal about that, but you get the sense that even when she's a child, she's interested and she's she's playing with color. As you go through the years, she moves to Washington, D.C. right before she turns 16 and enrolls at Armstrong High School. And she has her first kind of proper studio training there. And she describes walking into the studio as if walking into heaven. And you get the sense that being in a studio is a transformational experience for her. We don't have paintings from that period that we know of. So there's nothing that we can actually show from then. But you do get a sense that she's interested and starting to create work, even as a teenager. The first work, painted work that we have uh, represented in the show is one that she made around the time that she was enrolled at Howard. So this is In the 1920s 23 24 she makes a painting of a still life and in the exhibition we although as you note, the exhibition is not installed chronologically we do have these chronological installations within sections where you can see how she develops her painting over time as well as how she returns to certain themes over and over again so in one section that focuses on the studio it starts with this very early painting from the early 1920s and then it makes a little bit of a jump forward into the 1950s when she begins studying at American University. Uh, she's still teaching full time, but in 1952 she enrolls in classes and kind of follows the trajectory of painting that they have there. She begins by painting still lives and then notices that people are making abstracted versions of the still lives and takes up that style. And then pushes even further into non-objective works all in the span of her time at American. It's only after she leaves American that she tries to do something very different. And that's in the mid-60s when she's approached to have an exhibition at Howard University. And she decides that she has to do something unique, something really different. Uh, and that's where she comes up with what she calls Alma stripes or these sort of broken lines of dabs of paint. I should say I sort of skipped over, but in the 40s, she's also making paintings by participating in the little Paris studio. And this is a a club that was formed by Lois Maylou Jones out of her home. And a group of teachers and other art enthusiasts were getting together and making paintings, oftentimes uh, portraits, studies of figures or still lives.
0: You know, this catalog is just stuffed with fantastic essays. I particularly like the essays by Rebecca Bush and Jonathan Walls, your, your co-curator. The Sam essay penned by a, a team doing a technical analysis of Thomas's work was terrific. So were essays by Nell Irvin Painter and Melanie Harvey. Your essay, one of one of two you wrote or co-wrote, looks at Thomas teaching and the familiar narrative that Thomas's artistic career was substantially contingent on her retirement from teaching. Uh, She'd been a, a longtime teacher at Washington's Shaw Junior High. So you wrote an essay that would seem to me or should retire that narrative. How did Thomas's teaching change when she retired from Shaw in 1960? And how do you think teaching
1: informed her work? You know, Thomas was really a lifelong teacher. And one of the things I try to get away from in the essay that I wrote for the catalog is uh, this sense that there are decisive breaks. I think we, we like seeing those in any artist's career, that there's one thing gets put away and another thing gets started. But teaching for her was very much a continuous effort. And I think when she retired from classroom teaching, she just continued on teaching in community service organizations, largely those Uh, connected to St. Luke's Church, which is just down the street from her home in Washington. She'd already been involved there well before retiring. And so it was just a continuation in many ways. I do think that art probably played a different role. Visual art probably played a different role depending on whatever was going on in her life at the time. But she had devised a really progressive curriculum at an early age of how to integrate visual art Color theory, studies in woodworking and electronics, even language arts and history, all into an integrated curriculum at an early age and largely around marionettes as a sort of focus of study. And that continued all along. We know in the 60s, when she's mostly volunteering at St. Luke's, she's working with various groups of young people. And we see not only 2D works of art that they made, we can see these in some photographs but we also see them working in little figurines that they've seemed to have carved or maybe made out of clay and painted. So she's continuing these hands-on uh, activities that are really meant to draw in other aspects of creativity, areas of learning into a single project or a single whole. Thomas,
0: in the last 20 or so years of her career, famously built pictures out of blocks, brush strokes of pure color. Do you have an understanding of how she came to that, I don't know, not style,
1: not form, but that way of building pictures, that that way of making marks? I think there's kind of a lot of theorization around this, but there's not such good evidence of how she came to it. In many ways, she wanted to depart from what others were doing, and that in many ways inspired her. In some ways, to answer your question, it kind of depends on what trajectory we're looking at. Jacob Canaan talks quite a bit about Thomas's mid-century abstraction. Let me, let me
0: jump in really quick just to note that Jacob Canaan was a Washington-based painter and collector, and uh, memory serves, he worked at the National Gallery, too.
1: So he he donated a significant collection to the National Gallery. He worked at the Smithsonian as a curator of, of prints and drawings. Oh, Ron. that's right. And he, he was a good friend of Alma Thomas's. We know that they worked together when she was at American University, the dates for that was 1952 to 1957, but they certainly knew each other on the scene in Washington before then, and uh, they were close for the rest of really the rest of her life. He makes the note that she is influenced heavily by the kind of moody abstractions of the mid 1950s that many students at American are drawn to, and these are paintings that uh, you can see uh, at the Smithsonian's collection. There'll be a couple in the exhibition as well. They're very dark. They're very blue. They're very moody. They are very gestural. And she makes a decision at a certain point that she doesn't want to go in that direction. She doesn't want to be associated with that anymore. And she really wants to focus on something that is brighter, more optimistic, richer in value and tone and makes a break from that by focusing on brighter um, some some cases undiluted colors i'm i'm dodging part of your question which is really about the the kind of broken form the the dabs of paint and you know i'm not sure that we know exactly how she gets to that point she's experimenting i think that it's partly her working on paper over and over again that she's finding her way to this form and that's that's something that jonathan and i both focused on more and more when we were seeing large groupings of her work put together, which is one of the benefits of doing a big show like this is that you get to see so much of the work at once. And What you find is that she, her, her approach to creativity in painting is to kind of exhaust something in, until a new creative pathway opens up. So she effectively paints the same form over and over and over again until something changes, something shifts And you see that in a whole section of studies where she's painting just kind of red and blue washes. And as she's painting them, they're shifting and they're changing shape and she's seeing overlap between them. And that seems to be where this breakthrough happens. It happens by trial and error, by sort of seeing what works and what sticks.
0: One of the things I got out of the 2016 show at the Tang at Skidmore was how much Thomas looked at Matisse. It's in the paintings. It was also in the notebooks, sketchbooks that were just such an exciting part of of that project. So when I look at Thomas's blocks of color, I think right away of like 1904, 1905 Matisse, like Luxcom, at Volopte, and some of the Collier summer pictures of 05, which are built from Matisse's jumping off from pointillism and trying to build it into something more three-dimensional. And it feels like she's taking that idea and remaking it for American abstraction.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I think you're, you're right to note the influence of Matisse. And in fact, there's a, she makes importantly a direct quotation of Matisse in 1963 with her painting Watusi, Hard Edge. It's in the show as well. um, And it is is a painted version of a cutout that she would have seen in New York some years before. And she's rotated it. She's made it uh, out of paint instead of cut paper. And she's dramatically altered the colors to a kind of a blue tone, uh, bordering it with a variety of colors for the various components inside. And there is a kind of breaking apart of, of color into these distinct areas, it's not a mode that she maintains. She doesn't have these hard edge forms for very long. She certainly reduces them by 1966 into these dabs of paint. And she importantly does not have, in many cases, the kind of rigid hard edge that you would see in 1963. There's, there's a blurring of the edge, oftentimes a layering uh, in her dabs or pats of paint. I think I think the other the other sort of key influence here would be Cezanne, who is uh, Cezanne's work is acquired by the Phillips, and it, it sort of shakes things up when it shows up in Washington D.C., especially for the people who are associated with American University. Um, I think it, people are rushing to the Phillips to take a look at it, and and for her, she she talks about the way that Cezanne used color in an architectural way. Really, was building with color. And I think that's an, that's certainly another turning point for her that she's realizing what the possibilities of color can be.
0: The Phillips was important to Thomas, as Julie McGee and I discussed on the program back in March. David Driscoll and Alma Thomas had a, a regular or at least frequent, I think it was Sunday date at the Phillips for many years. The show includes not just paintings in oil and acrylic, of course. But also a lot of the watercolors Thomas made, watercolors that were kind of typically in the 6 to 9 or 8 by 10 inch range. What was the relationship between those watercolors and Thomas's canvases?
1: Yeah, so another real revelation for us when we were working on this project, uh, and by we I mean Jonathan and I, my co-curator, at the Columbus Museum's collection we were able to look at So many of the works on paper that were given by Thomas's sister to the Columbus Museum. And depending on when the study was made, it had a different relationship to her final paintings. So in some cases, she was really just working with form and really playing around to come up with color combinations or formal approaches that she would then translate to a larger canvas. Many times, however, and you can see this on the cover of the catalog, she would cut these apart into almost collage-like strips and reassemble them so she could come up with the right color arrangement before moving up in scale to the large canvas. Part of this was practical. She was trying to kind of figure things out in order to make determinations about what colors went well together, which ones didn't, how much space to give each compositional element. But part of this was also strategic and had to do with her work in a small studio space, as we talked about before, uh, but also her physical limitations. It was getting increasingly hard for her to make work like this due to arthritis. She had a bad fall and was suffering. She was in in a wheelchair for some time. So it made moving to Canvas something that had to be done very deliberately because it was so much effort to work up to that scale. That being said, even while she would use these studies to create a real uh, map to follow, we know from the technical analysis that the Lunder Conservation Center did. She improvised as she was going, and she would make the determination that something didn't quite look right. Maybe it wasn't the right color arrangement, and so she would go back and change things. Sometimes the pat of paint that she would put down wouldn't really be the shape that she was looking for, and she would go back in to try to cut... color match the background, sometimes wet into dry and you could sort of clearly see her painting over something, sometimes wet into wet and it wouldn't exactly color over and you could kind of see a mixing happening on the canvas. And those kind of incidents and details in some ways enliven the work. It really brings added dimension to the quality of these works uh, that's really unique to her. I think you, you really see her in the works because of the way she's making those improvisations. Speaking of Thomas's colors and her palette,
0: you know we're taping while you're you're still installing the show, so I haven't seen it yet. But in scrolling through the catalog, it occurred to me that Thomas's palette is as varied and broad and unpinned downable as as any of her American contemporaries that I can think of. It's Metesian in its breadth, as well as obviously its use, you know, for, for Thomas, color is line and form and everything else. As you worked on the show in the book, what did you learn about how Thomas thought about and used color? And I guess particularly, we know that she read about color theory and whether whether what color theory she read and how it informed her.
1: Yeah. So you you're right to notice this. And it's, again, one of the things that I'm so Least we can do in a show at this scale is that you can see how dramatically her palette transforms over time. Early in what is her sort of signature style mode, her mid 1960s paintings, she's using very bright, almost prismatic colors, prismatic in the sense of sort of true to the rainbow colors. Those colors really deepen and transform as the years go on, and there are much more muted tones that she incorporates much more subtle variation to the color. She's not working directly out of the tube, but she's mixing either beforehand or on the canvas itself. And you can sort of see that in some of the tones. The inspiration, you're right, is is very much through her studies in color theory. And I think one of the one of the takeaways, and it gets maybe back to an earlier question that you asked about how her various creative interests overlap. It's an observation that, again, Jacob Canaan, her friend and sometimes mentor, made, which is that, we we know that she was really well read in Johannes Itten's color theories, and she was quoting from it heavily in her artist statement. She was really fascinated by the way color brings things to life. But for Kanan, this became very literal, and he described the way that she would move between colors as if being like a dance. And he would say, it's not just two steps up in the color wheel, but it's kind of two steps up in movement. And when he describes her painting, it's kind of this activity where she's moving about the work as if it's a choreographed uh, series of of gestures. It's more than a metaphor, It's, it's, it's literal. It's how she's working with color as a way to move you, the viewer, as she's also moving to make the painting itself.
0: I worry I'm becoming a little too art historical and disembodied from what interested Thomas herself. So let me kind of take a hard right-hand turn into a couple of things. Both the photographs and the texts in the catalog and indeed photographs in the show make super clear how important the natural world was to Thomas. What of the natural world was most at hand and perhaps through windowpane for her and how did she work what she saw there into her
1: paintings? Nature plays a really primary role in her work and her entire life from the very beginning. And when you start thinking about her roots in Columbus, you can see that her her life on Rose Hill, which was a sort of suburb overlooked downtown Columbus, was an airy and green part of the city that was away from the railroads and the markets that are an integral part of the columbus uh, city's economy and really the region's economy she would have spent time out in nature and she thought about that the rest of her life she talks about some of her uh, early 1970s abstractions she's referring to her memories in a direct way uh, of listening to the wind move through the poplar trees, which she did as a child. And so that, that memory is always there. She also spent quite a bit of time at her grandfather's farm across the river in Alabama and made, at least sort of earlier on in her career, she made a painting of the site uh, based on photographs. And so that was with her as well. It was a, It was a part of her outlook I think when she moves to Washington, D.C., she encounters nature in a new way. Nature is very formalized in D.C. It's part of the urban plan in very prescribed and very directed ways as part of how the city is going to be structured. And she is at once very drawn to the green spaces in D.C., but she also has a kind of critique of it. And she says when she's starting to make some of her nature, sort of mature nature-inspired paintings She says things like, the world is so formalized, and she's seeking to sort of break that apart and have a more relaxed approach. And that's exactly what she would have seen in her garden. And this is where we have the scholar Gray Gundaker write about nature, about her garden, specifically for the catalog. And using photographs and some commentary from the time, uh, Gray was able to piece together the kind of the way that the garden would have been shaped. And it it was a very lively garden with lots of moving parts, uh, lots of growing and receding happening through all seasons of the year. There was nothing terribly rigidly organized about it. It was just meant to be an active space of color and form and shape that was always changing and that really appealed to thomas it's very clear that she she sort of planted things in a mixed or layered way so that there was always something happening in that space and i and i really think you see that in the work she's she's really pulling so many different layers and colors and forms together
0: another primary influencer engagement that many of the catalog's authors discuss is music and how important music was to Thomas. We talked about it briefly when we talked about 1976, Red Azalea's singing and dancing rock and roll music, but it goes well beyond that one picture and indeed kind of gets into playlists and I should stop talking and just ask you how music was important to her and how it made it into her canvases.
1: It, it absolutely made it made it i mean in the in the way that i describe by referencing jacob Kanan and in his memory of her kind of transposing color theory into literal almost dance steps music very much played played that that role of transforming or transposing she would title her works after different kinds of music so there's sonata there's etudes uh, there's rock and roll What we also know through the archive that she listened to music uh, and and quite a variety of music. We know that the Watusi probably played. There's a great painting called the Watusi. But we also know that she listened to rock and roll and most of all, probably things like show tunes and movie soundtracks. Uh, She had really eclectic tastes in music. And I think that's it's important to note that for a number of reasons. I think that there's a frequency of, of referring to her paintings as being jazz-like, and they're not, not jazz-like, but they're not exclusively jazz-like either, and jazz would have just been one of the many musical forms that she was attracted to or listened to. I, I think that things like the Watusi was probably very appealing because not only was it a song, but it was a it was a dance craze, and it's one that she would have known through school fundraisers and dances that she was organizing and attending, so she would have seen it. She would have been very aware of what the Watusi was and how to do it, Uh, and she would listen to it and and get real joy from it. We also know know, the title of the exhibition is Everything is Beautiful, which is a direct quotation of the song, Everything is Beautiful in Its Own Way. We know from Thomas's great-nephew that that was one of her favorite songs, which is you know it's 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 a very uplifting and sweet song there's a children's chorus that pipes in partway through the song where a large group of kids start singing everything is beautiful in its own way and she loved it and it really inspired her to keep making work and so i think understanding the musical interests uh, definitely uh, adds dimension to an appreciation of her paintings
0: there's a really interesting moment in her work in the late 60s and early 70s i want to talk a little bit about She had a show in a Washington gallery at about that moment that included work both informed or inspired by the space age and America's, you know, entrance into space, if you will. And and she paired those paintings with pictures that reference flowers, such as 1969's Azalea's Sway with the Breeze. So first, those space paintings. Like I don't want to ask why she was interested in the space a space age because like America was fascinated by the thing, but I am curious about how she translated that interest into her painterly language because sometimes it's really abstract, sometimes it's a little less so. How
1: how do you think she she moved one interest into her work?
0: That one interest into her work.
1: I think there's a, probably a couple ways to answer your question. You know, I think in. In 1972, she has her famous, you know, now famous, now legendary, really, Whitney exhibition. And that show includes examples of both her her nature paintings, her sort of garden or nature series, as well as her space series. And it's interesting to see those together. And in fact, in the exhibition, we include a kind of small ver- a small restaging of the Whitney show. And you can see those works together. And... As we talked about earlier, her palette has changed quite a bit. The colors in the sort of nature paintings are a little bit brighter, they feel a little bit more straight from the tube, and when you get to the space paintings there's quite a bit more uh, variation in her tone. There's not so much use of primary color, at least not not purely primary. And so there there's a Color change that happens, but there's still a, an overlap in technique. When she started making her nature paintings, she described it in a very literal, maybe almost too literal way. That she she described her intention was to imagine what the world looked like when traveling in a pain. You know, things move by so quickly, you just see these streaks of color, and she wanted to she wanted to emulate that. Uh, she she said she wanted to do it even though she had never been in a plane herself. She was sort of imagining what it looked like from the air as you're flying over gardens or paintings. And I think there's some truth to that, but it's not exclusively that way in her work. But there there is this sense of connecting to what the world looks like when you're moving quickly, when you have speed, and when the space race takes off, and when images are coming back from the lunar orbiter and then from the Mars orbiter. I think she's really fascinated by how movement is captured in images in general and in some ways she's she's pulling from that you know one of one of the most exciting things for me in the show is the painting cumulus which is on loan from sf moma uh, which they only acquired a few years ago and it's it's a very delicate painting in the sense that it's a kind of series of whites and pinks over a bit of a darker background and it seems to be inspired by ideas about what was happening on Mars when the Mars orbiter was first sending back images. And classically, if, if, you, if you followed this history, when the Mars orbiter was first sending back images, uh, it was unable to because there was such an enormous dust cloud over Mars. It was like a month-long months long dust storm that was obscuring images of the surface, which was the intent of the orbiter. And I think that that probably would have really inspired Thomas. You know, that was, that was meant to be a disruption to the mission. But for Thomas, the idea that dust would be swirling around and obscuring the color of the surface of Mars was another way of, of approaching the material and another source of inspiration.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because it gives, the opportunity, it gives me the opportunity to, <laughs> to say that you borrowed a painting from the Central Intelligence Agency. Which, in all of my years around art, I think is, is is an all time first, at least in terms of loans I've noticed, is coming from the CIA. And that painting is titled "Mars Reflection." It's from 1972. I won't I won't ask how the heck you got a painting out of Langley, but but that's very awesome.
1: A highlight of my curatorial career is being able to go in and see. You know, they they have a really interesting collection formed in the 70s, largely through Vincent Melzac, who was placing a Washington painter's work at various organizations. We, in fact, borrowed two paintings. We have one Thomas in the show, and we have Gene Davis also from CIA Collection. But I, I should point out that that was one of the intentions that Jonathan and I set out to, to do is that, you know, in, in recent years, there's been increasing interest in Alma Thomas and You know, our our colleagues at the Tang and the Studio Museum did this incredible show a few years ago that I think really raised the profile of the artist, really put her again on people's minds. And certainly when the Obamas were acquiring work for the White House, that really brought Alma Thomas to more attention. But Jonathan and I wanted to go further and find works that maybe hadn't been seen or been in private hands. Maybe they'd You know, been off the market for a long time in a private collection. And so people hadn't seen images of them even. And uh, certainly with the CIA paintings, that was the intention is that, you know, go see it yourself, but it'll be on the tour so people can see them while they're traveling.
0: Finally, there's a section of the show and, of course, of the catalog too that features works not by Thomas, but by Cezanne and David Driscoll and Jacob Kanan, who's come up a few times and Sam Gilliam and Kenneth Noland and so on, often, I think, presented with Thomas's. I love it. Why Why that curatorial strategy? Why was that an inclusion and in a set of relationships y'all wanted to make?
1: Thomas was a part of many artistic networks and creative communities in Washington, D.C. And, you know, although we debated it quite heavily, in fact, we, we had an advisory committee of 20 scholars who met for several days in Washington, Early on in the planning of the project, and we debated it quite heavily there. Should a retrospective include works by other artists, or should we really focus attention on Thomas? And if we are going to include other artists, how are we going to stage them in an exhibition with Thomas? How are we going to show them together so that people understand relationships and don't confuse them? And it seemed very clear to Jonathan and I that we really had to include the works of artists who she was working with, sometimes uh, working in some ways against or at least in a a countervailing way to what they were doing, in some ways to, to kind of set the record straight. For example, Thomas is oftentimes associated with the color school in Washington, and she fits in with them in certain ways, but in other ways she doesn't. And I don't think it's easy to understand the connection and the disconnection from the rest of the artists who are associated with the school Uh, unless you see them together. There are many times where Thomas has been thought of as or described as a late blooming artist who drew inspiration from those around her. But only when you see her work in dialogue with the other artists, you see that they're looking to her as well. And there's really an ongoing conversation. People are really pushing one another to open up new creative pathways. As I described before, that was something Thomas was doing internally through her study. She was really exhausting creative ideas until she would break through to something new. That was happening in dialogue with artists as well, and you only get that by um, making comparisons. Seth Feeman, thanks very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: The Museum of Fine Arts Houston, presenting Three Centuries of American Art. Antiquities, European, and American masterpieces from the Fayez S. Seraphim Collection, showcasing more than 200 works from Impressionism through Abstract Expressionism, Pop, Minimalism, and Contemporary Art. MFAH.org slash Collection. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie: Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit PulitzerArts.org. Welcome back. My next guest, Bernard Herman, is the go-to expert on the work of Ronald Lockett. Lockett's work is on view now at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Fayetteville, Arkansas, in What I Know Gifts from Gordon W. Bailey. It'll be up through October 11th. You can also see Lockett in In Dialogue Artist Mentor Friend Ronald Lockett and Thornton Dial, Sr. at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens through November 28th. Herman curated the 2016-17 Lockett retrospective, Fever Within, The Art of Ronald Lockett, and edited the exhibition's superb catalog, which was published by University of North Carolina Press. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $36 to $45. We'll have links on the show page at manpodcast.com. Bernie Herman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you for inviting me to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: As we talk about Ronald Lockett, I think we ought to start with place and people. You describe Lockett's origins in what you call the Birmingham Bessemer School, a construction that joins place to people, of course. So what do we need to know about from whom and from where Lockett comes to be able to dive into the work?
2: The idea of a Birmingham Bessemer School or a circle or a group is a response to the bad habit of seeing artists such as Lockett or his relative Thornton Dial in isolation. Because they did not work in isolation, they often worked together. They certainly knew of each other. Lonnie Holly was instrumental in all of that. Lockett grew up in Bessemer on the same street where his cousin Thornton Dial lived with his family and made art. And early on, Lockett would go up and spend time with Mr. Dial and sit and watch him work, which was very unusual because Mr. Dial did not care to have anybody, even family members, be with him when he worked. And Lockett began to think more and more about art making. I'm not sure how young he was when he started, but certainly around 1988, 1989, he was making work with what Melvin Edwards, the sculptor, has described as familiar form media, which is a term I prefer vastly over found, which connotes accident, serendipity, luck. And those are just inappropriate connections. The media was always curated. Its origins were important. And so Lockett grew up working in this community. And as a kid, he worked with a local carpenter who would round up uh, kids on a weekend and they would all go to some job site. And so he learned fundamental carpentry tool skills. And he all the time was really engaged with uh, Mr. Dial's art. In time, Lockett began to put together his own work. And it's really quite extraordinary how quickly he worked and how much he made in a very short period. He really was active for roughly a decade, 1988 to his death in 1998, I believe believe. Lockett's earliest work included representations of stories from the Bible, representations of faith. There were also representations of his view of African-American experience in the community where he lived. And in that time period, one of the very first pieces he makes And the date for it is 1987, so it's really on the cusp of that 1988 to 1998 period that really maps the majority of his career. He makes this work that is an allegorical self-portrait. And in that work, what you see is his avatar, a deer. That deer is skeletal and it is crossing over from the world of the living and that is represented by the blue sky and the green earth and into the blackness of oblivion with that strip of white that runs through it which i tend to read as the river that souls cross when they die and so Lockett has this really sort of also a grim sense of destiny very early on. It's in this period that he begins the traps series and makes several of these. And these include, again, various representations of avatars, in particular his own as the deer, along with other animals. For example, rabbits moving through a very plain landscape overlain with wire or netting. In one instance, is chain link fence. And this is really representing the flight for freedom, but the entrapment of being in the South, being a young person with very limited opportunities in a city, Birmingham and Bessemer, with declining never to return industrial economies. And so there's a real kind of uh, despair in that work. And that despair on the one hand is locket self-identifying but on another hand speaking to a much larger kind of human condition particularly people regardless of background who have been marginalized who have been targeted so that when you look at Lockett's rebirth you need to also look at the work that he did on the holocaust which follows the same palette but what you have there is the green earth the blue sky and then you have these pieces of plain wood that move across the margin between heaven and earth which are representations of boxcars and in the void cut from a single piece of metal so that all these figures are connected are the bodies of dead jews exterminated in the camps tumbling into the pits of the afterlife or not just into oblivion and that came to Lockett in that time period having watched a film on television called Escape from Sobior. And so he's really developing these tropes that he advances through his work, and they cycle through in ways that are constantly inventive.
0: That raises the issue in Lockett's work that interests and fascinates me the most. In a short career that ended too early, of course, you know, one that started in his late teens and thus ended in his early 30s, he tackled the biggest American ideas and the biggest global themes. Nature, the dropping of the atomic bomb, environmental degradation, the Christian tradition, clan terrorism. So like that's stuff artists do. Artists take on big ideas, but not in their 20s. (laughs) And, and, He did and did so with consistency across the oeuvre and with, to my mind, to your mind, enormous pictorial and and conceptual success. So why did he feel like he should attack issues that big? What in his experience helped him feel empowered to go that big? I mean, like I talk to artists all the time. I don't talk to a lot of 20-something artists who think that Dropping of the atomic bomb is something they should do at 27.
2: (laughs) Lockett, of course, was influenced by Mr. Dial. And Mr. Dial was dealing with exactly those big questions in his own way. So that there was that connection that these were important and accessible topics. The other thing about Lockett is that he was a close listener to history, primarily the histories that were narrated by a Sarah Dial Lockett, who essentially raised Ronald Lockett. And she would recount all these histories about uh, the night Riders, the burning of farms, the decades of Jim Crow. So he was collecting some of this through oral history. He was also very keen on environmental issues, would go to the local public library and take advantage of its resources. And if ever there was an instance on the crucial place of public libraries in American life, Lockett would be the exemplar of that argument. And he was not alone in that regard. The artist Purvis Young in Miami did the same thing. So Lockett was clearly informed and thinking about these issues. But one way to frame Lockett is to think of him as a young old man, is that Early on, he had this powerful sense of the sweep of history and of the need to express what those histories might mean through the media that he curated in the world around him.
0: You mentioned a little earlier his use of the color black. He uses it a lot, uh, sometimes painted, sometimes as charred material sometimes it's metaphorical sometimes it's more literal you know as in night oh and sometimes he uses it as both metaphorical and literal as norman lewis does in in his paintings that most directly address life in the american south that strikes me as a pretty unusual thing to 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 use something both metaphorically and literally often as as both things within single works what have you noticed about his his use of the color black, maybe where it came from, and how he found so many different
2: ways to use it. Lockett's choice of black as a color emanates, I think, in two particular areas. There's the one in which it speaks to oblivion it speaks to the unknown it speaks to the afterlife in those really powerful metaphorical ways and it also speaks to a kind of darkness in the human heart Mm. that is out there and the unrelieved blackness of all of the smoke-filled sky works is really astonishing to me and these were the pieces that he created that were comments on the terrorism wreaked by the knight riders clan white supremacists not only through jim crow but continuing right through the civil rights movement and which his family experienced directly Mr. Dial, for example, working in the country, had his hay burned in one of these terrorist attacks. And this occurs under the cover of darkness masked. It speaks to a darkness in, interestingly enough, an ideology that is about being white. And so this unrelieved darkness is a real repudiation of that whiteness that white terror and at the same time speaks to the kind of despair you know it's when i think about it is and i think of night f- uh, smoke filled skies when i think of smoke filled skies i often think of conrad's heart of darkness and that where Lockett is traveling is up that river And as he gets into that world is things become increasingly dense, increasingly impenetrable and increasingly resistant to any kind of generosity of the spirit.
0: Conversely, he also makes a lot of works that are almost entirely white. Which is, which is pretty interesting. One of them is up now, Crystal Bridges. Wolves look back from 1993. Is the way he uses intense and suffusing whiteness related to the way he uses dark and suffusing blacks?
2: I would think so. There's not been much thinking or work around his use mm-hmm. of color. But as we think about it in this conversation, I would say there's reciprocity and how he positions black and white in these works after all it's white which is the uh, general background for the trap series and the animals yes. and he's very clear that those are about his experience and the experience of his community in a time and place defined by a dominant political and economic power which circumvents, prescribes, limits any kind of African-American advancement.
0: Wolves features two animals in the left foreground of of the picture. You mentioned that Lockett often used deer as an avatar. There are uh, a bunch of other animals in his work so if deer are our avatars, kind of a self-portraiture reference, is there another hierarchy or kind of definitional use of specific animals, or is that kind of limited to deer, or are the wolves something specific?
2: Well, animals are used in a variety of ways, not just in Lockett's work, but in Holly's and Dial's and work as well. And they are signifiers, various associations. It's not always clear what they are, but they do possess a powerful narrative presence within these works. The work of the wolves, looking back, really speaks in some ways to a species that is at once feared, and threatened. And Mm -hmm. he has them represented together. And you'll find very often that he will pair two wolves, two deer, it will be a buck and a doe. And these are also representations of something that Lockett felt very strongly about, which was the notion of romantic love. He really believed in romantic love, and that these figures, even as they are threatened and threatening, are bound together in a kind of connection so that their fate is shared within their own universe of feeling.
0: One of the things that's really interesting to me about the way Lockett uses animals is that the dominant American tradition of art about nature from Emerson forward is about land. Mm. And there's, sure, there's land in, in Lockett's work. We've already talked about some of it, but he's not interested in that. He's interested in fauna. And there is much less a tradition, except for in Dabbed-in Deer and stats, of fauna in playing starring roles in American painting. And boy, it sure does in his. And he animates them and activates them and traps them, as you noticed, noted earlier in Chicken Wire and in Cyclone Fence. In the book, you noted that he came to animals not from personal experience as much as nature documentaries?
2: That's true. It's Paul Arnett, who was a close friend of Lockett's, and who knew him very well, who spent a lot of time with Lockett. And Lockett would watch nature documentaries, he would also watch painting shows or art shows on public broadcasting. And so these became real influences for him, and he would tap in to that world. And it's also where a lot of his larger environmental awareness comes from. So that if you think of a work like, I believe it's Poison River, You know, it's all there. And he's speaking to a kind of environmentalism that is informed by what he read in the library and what he watched on television.
0: Let's close with a work that Thornton Dial made in 1998 as a tribute to Lockett. It's an extraordinary work. It includes the the deer, uh, uh, a stag, as as reference to Lockett's use of deer as his own avatar, but it places that figure within a very Marsden Hartley-like mountainous, New England mountainous landscape, or New England referencing art historically mountainous landscape. What do you think of that work, and is that a work in which Dial is kind of arguing for Lockett's place in America's art history?
2: I don't know that Mr. Dial was arguing for Lockett's place in American art history. What he was doing was celebrating Lockett's life. That... Lockett was frustrated in many ways. He was a person who was given to pessimism, to a rather bleak view of the world around him and his place in it. And so that his deer are almost always threatened or stressed or in some sort of circumstances that does not bode well for them or the worlds they inhabit. Dial takes Lockett's avatar, gives it wonderful antlers, makes it muscular, makes it triumphant, has it in a world that is not dry and sear, but in a world that is in full bloom. And so what he has done is celebrate Lockett's life with a work of art that is a meditation on the power that Lockett had on those around him. Dial is the one who usually gets the press these days, and justifiably so. But it's arguable, and Bill Arnett made this point in conversation several times, that Dial learned as much from Lockett as Lockett learned from Dial. And when I sat with Mr. Dial to interview him about Lockett and seek his sense of that, and I asked him, I said, did Lockett have an impact on your work? And Dial responded, absolutely. He was a presence that Lockett was a powerful artist and one whose techniques Dial would appropriate, just as Lockett appropriated those of Mr. Dial into his own work. I think that what unites them, and this puts them together in sort of a larger art historical framework. I think of both Ronald Lockett and Thornton Dial as the great history painters of the American South in the late 20th century, early 21st century. I think of them both as grand manner artists and that what they are doing is speaking to those huge historical themes through metaphor, through representation, through avatars, through the curation of the media they use in order to make those grand statements in ways that are profoundly compelling and ultimately extraordinarily memorable and affecting. Ernie Herman, thanks very much. Well, thank you very much for having me uh, today for this conversation.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.